the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to uh, spending a little time with you just hanging out. James Blend is producing Dave King Engineering in the Portland area. Pedro Bartes in the Seattle area. Later today on the program, we're going to talk with uh, Kevin Terrio. He is senior counsel with the Alliance Defending Freedom on a Seattle area church to the Ninth Circuit Court. Don't let Washington force us to pay for abortions. We'll tell you more about that. He joins us in the second hour of today's program. But first, we'll take a look at what's going on. Well, every living, current and former U.S. First Lady attended the memorial service for Rosalind Carter earlier today. Former President Carter, who is 99, honored his late wife, Rosalind Carter during a memorial service in Atlanta, attended by all the living U.S. First Ladies and multiple presidents. The tribute at Glenn Memorial Church and Emory University began at about 1 p.m. local time. Well, it falls on the second of a three-day schedule of public events celebrating the former First Lady and global humanitarian who died on the 19th of this month at her home in Plains, Georgia, at the age of 96. Tribute started on Monday in the Carter's native Sumter County, continued in Atlanta as she lay in repose at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Center. My mother was the glue that held our family together through ups and downs and thicks and thins of our family politics, Chip Carter said, her son. And as the service began, President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden, longtime friends of the Carters, uh, led the list of dignitaries joining the A widowed former president in Atlanta, former President Clinton and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, along with former First Lady Melania Trump, uh, Michelle Obama and Laura Bush, all paying their respects as our Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and his wife, Marty Kemp, former President Trump, Obama and Bush were invited but did not attend. Uh, Their wives did. Country music star Garth Brooks and Tricia Yearwood, family friends of the Carters, uh, performed in the invitation-only tribute service, according to the Carter Center. Former President Carter, who is uh, 10 months into home hospice care and hadn't been seen in public since September, watched from his wheelchair under a blanket, reclined it a bit with his legs elevated, um, with his daughter Amy holding his hand, according to the APN pictures that have since been published. He sat flanked by his other three children as well, Jeff to his left, Chip and Jack to his right. The Carter Center confirmed his plans to attend the service. It was uh, not certain that he would be able to. It is his first public appearance in September when he and Rosalind Carter rode together in the Plains Peanut Festival Parade, visibly on, visible rather only through open windows in a secret service vehicle. Carter, who was with his wife during her final hours, didn't appear publicly during any part of a public motorcade or wreath-laying ceremony on Monday. And Rosalind Carter's alma mater, alma mater rather, um, uh, Georgia Southwestern State University in Americas. Uh, Rosalind was my equal partner in everything I ever accomplished, he said in a statement after his wife's pass, uh, passing. She gave me wise guidance and encouragement when I needed it. As long as Rosalind was in the world, I always knew somebody loved and supported me. 
That really is a very fulsome statement about the relationship they shared with one another. The Carters were married in 1946. They're 77 plus years together. Makes them the longest married presidential couple in U.S. history. Said Jason Carter on uh, Tuesday, uh, my grandmother, in addition to being a partner to my grandfather, was a force on her own. Well, Rosalind Carter has been praised for half a century of advocacy for better mental health care in America and reducing the stigma attached to mental illness. She brought attention to the tens of millions of people uh, who work as unpaid caregivers in U.S. households, and she gained new acclaim for how integral she was to her husband's political rise and in his uh, terms as governor. Uh, Georgia's governor and the 39th president. Jason Carter himself, a former state senator and one-time Democratic nominee for governor, called her the best politician in the family, a distinction former President Carter never disputed. My wife is much more political, the former president told the AP back in 2021. Rosalind Carter uh, memorialized earlier today in the final ceremony following her death. Well, the Israel Defense Forces announced uh, last night or last night for them today for us that the 12 newly released hostages are currently inside Israeli territory. In a statement, the IDF said that their special forces division was currently uh, with the 12 released hostages. After an initial medical assessment, the released hostages will continue to be accompanied by IDF soldiers as they make their way to Israeli hospitals where they will be reunited with their families, the press release added. Well, the Israel Defense Forces salutes and embraces the released hostages upon their return home, end quote. The Israeli military said that they remain determined to bring home all of the hostages that were kidnapped by Hamas from Israel. The IDF, together with the entire Israeli security establishment, will continue to operate to bring home all the hostages. The press release continued. The IDF spokesperson reiterated the importance of demonstrating patience and sensitivity during this time out of respect for the released hostages and their families. The extended truce, which may not be the right word to describe this um, halt of hostilities, uh, will run through tomorrow. But Israel has promised that they will resume in their effort to remove Hamas from the territory, from the area. Meanwhile, the Iranian government is flexing its military power via a series of recent announcements as questions continue to grow as to whether the United States is doing enough to push back against the regime's increased attacks on American interests in the aftermath of the Hamas terror attack in Israel on October 7th. On Monday, Iran unveiled a new sophisticated warship for its Caspian Sea fleet that it says will be a sea of peace and friendship and said Iran's naval power there will serve peace and security of commercial fleets confronting terrorists and probable incidents in the future, which is almost laughable since they are the largest state sponsor of terrorism in that region and abroad. The announcement came shortly after the country claimed to have developed a new hypersonic ballistic missile, allegedly expanding one of the most dangerous military capabilities at their disposal. Iran is continuing to try to signal that its military industries are impervious to and cannot be set back by sanctions, hence the pomp and circumstance here. That's a uh, quote from a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Um, Of note, they went on to say, the new vessel is to be deployed in the Caspian Sea, a sign of the regime's increased uh, uh, securitization of the world's largest lake and a major conduit for the drone uh, trade with Russia. 
As Iran announces military advancements, Iranian-backed proxies have carried out dozens of attacks on American bases and interests in the Middle East since the Iran-backed Hamas terror organization attacked Israel, including in international waters where Yemen's Houthi rebels have fired upon and hijacked ships in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. Iran's um, evolving anti-access area denial capabilities are likely to continue to trickle to proxies like the Houthis in Yemen, which already boast anti-ship crews and anti-ship ballistic missiles. The increased attacks, along with uh, what many have said is a lack of proportionate response by the United States, have caused increased criticism from top Republicans in Congress and others. Since Joe Biden took office, Iran has attacked Americans' positions in the Middle East over 150 times, with over 70 of those attacks in the last month. Uh, Tom Cotton, a Republican senator of Arkansas, said on Monday, Iran and its proxies know they can get away with this because of the Biden administration that they rarely hit back. And when it does respond, the strikes only target empty warehouses or inconsequential proxy forces in Iraq and Syria. President Biden seems to be going out of his way to avoid targeting Iranians or the resources Iran holds dear. This weakness only invites more aggression from Iran and will continue unless the administration sends a clear message. These attacks are unacceptable. So far, that message has not been communicated. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and we will continue. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice. Coming up later in the program, we'll talk with uh, Kevin Terrio. He is senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. We're going to talk about a Seattle church that is challenging the uh, law passed in 2018 in the state of Washington requiring churches to provide uh, abortion services through their health insurance to their employees. That's coming up later in the five o'clock hour. Senator Marshall is urging the GOP to say no to supplemental funding requests from the president without tighter border security. Well, tackling the administration's national supplemental funding request is at the top of the agenda as the Senate returned from Thanksgiving recess this week. But it may prove to be a difficult feat for GOP lawmakers in the upper chamber. They're trying to strike a deal on including tighter border security provisions. Well, disagreement over tying Israel and Ukraine funding together also persists. GOP lawmakers who've grown skeptical of aid to Ukraine since the start of the Russian invasion last year are more in favor of pausing aid to the European, the Eastern European country. Senator Roger Marshall of uh, Kansas, a Republican, one of the lead lawmakers striving to split up Israel and Ukraine aid, said that funding for Israel and stronger border security measures like stricter asylum standards and more border patrol agents should go hand in hand. What we need is Republican leadership to stand up and say no. He said it more strongly than I am, but you get the idea. Idea. We will not vote cloture on anything that doesn't include meaningful border security, Marshall said in an interview on Monday. He said the GOP-controlled House leadership are on a different planet than the Democrat-controlled upper chamber and are no closer to a deal than they were at the start of October on border security negotiations. However, the cry for border security becomes louder, he went on to say. Well, Republican senators released a series of measures that are largely drawn from the House GOP signature border and immigration legislation. House resolution uh, resolution two rather passed in a the Republican controlled House earlier this year. The measure would be a condition for Republicans to agree to a one hundred and six billion dollar request for aid for Ukraine and Israel, which also includes fourteen billion dollars for border operations. Uh, GOP senators uh, Marshall uh, and Ted Cruz um, uh, J.D. Vance and Mike Lee introduced a standalone bill to funnel aid to Israel without trying it to Ukraine. 
uh, aid in October. That bill called the Israel Supplemental Appropriations Act is an alternative to the president's $106 billion emergency supplemental bill. Uh, we can't even get a small amount of GOP lawmakers to agree on Ukraine funding on border security, let alone Republican and Democrats in the Senate and the House, Marshall said. That's why we got to pull um, Israel funding out. Well, we'll continue to follow that story as it develops and to see whether or not there is movement. They have until early February to pass a budget. There's a lot going on, or rather in this case, a lot that's not going on. Meanwhile, a federal judge in Rhode Island on Monday tossed another challenge to former President Donald Trump's eligibility for the 2024 ballot. U.S. District Court Judge John McConnell Jr., an Obama appointee, dismissed a 14th Amendment challenge to listing Trump on the Rhode Island ballot. John Anthony Casto, a little-known 2024 Republican presidential candidate, filed the lawsuit along with several more in other states. The Supreme Court declined in October to hear Castro's uh, appeal in his case filed in Florida. The first U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals found last week that Castro lacked standing to bring his New Hampshire lawsuit. Castro's suit alleged that Trump is ineligible to hold office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which restricts officials who took an oath to the Constitution and then engaged in insurrection from holding office. He argues that he will lose potential voters and support if Trump remains a candidate. Uh, McConnell made his decision in light of the Uh, Reasons laid out in the First Circuit's opinion, which found that Castro was not a direct uh, and current competitor of the Trump of the uh, candidate Trump at the time the filing of his complaint was made. Accordingly, it follows that he has not shown that as of this time uh, he had satisfied the injury, in fact, component of the standing inquiry. The court ruled. So Rhode Island, he'll name his name rather will be on the ballot. Well, Democratic Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont is withdrawing his plan to mandate future electric vehicle purchases after the proposal received bipartisan pushback from lawmakers on a key legislative panel. Lamont ultimately pulled the proposal just four months after unveiling it and characterizing it as decisive action to meet our climate pollution reduction targets, end quote. In July, Lamont unveiled the proposal tethering Connecticut's emissions standards to those set in California, which mandates that every passenger vehicle sold is electric by 2035, the most aggressive target of its kind nationwide. Common sense has prevailed. Connecticut Senate Republican leader Kevin Kelly said in a statement, the governor's decision to withdraw the regulations is a reasoned approach to address the growing concerns raised by working and middle class families. Adopting California emission standards, which ban the sale of gas powered cars, is a substantial policy shift which must be decided by the General Assembly. There are too many questions regarding the capacity of our new electric of our electric grid, which is not new, the costs and location of grid improvements and the negative impact on urban, rural and working poor families. Kelly went on to add more than 90 percent of our pollution comes from outside the uh, outside the control of Connecticut. We need a national and international approach to improve our air quality. A state by state strategy will only prolong the attainment of cleaner Air. Well, Kelly is one of the Republican members of the Connecticut General Assembly's 14-member bicameral legislative regulation review committee, which is tasked with approving regulations proposed by state agencies. Well, going into Thanksgiving weekend, the uh, Walt Disney Company released its 100-year uh, years of animation tribute film, Wish. Like the uh, Marvels be- uh, before it, Wish was a flop. 
It only bought in $8.3 million the first day and a cumulative first day total of $31.7 million uh, when compared to the $400 million budget. Uh, that is a devastating blow. Now, there is a valid question to ask before, um, uh, before we go further. Was this film a flop because Disney has made itself box office poison, or was it because people aren't willing to pay the price to take their kids to the theater when streaming is so much more convenient? It really is a question to take into account. Taking a family of four or, or more to the movies is an investment. The tickets alone can amount to at least $65. Then add in all the obligatory snacks and, well, you've got a $100 trip. However, if movies were uplifting and entertaining, helping people forget about hard times like during the Great Depression, that investment might be worth something. But Disney isn't worth the investment anymore, and that's being proved yet again at the theater. Increasingly, um, enough... Uh, Families are unwilling to pay the big money to see the big film. Interestingly enough, for this particular Disney film, it was the critics and not audiences that crucified the movie in review purgatory. Wish's plot left a lot to be desired. Many say it got off track and had major plot holes, and the musical score was adequate but not spectacular. Overall, it was a hyped film that seemed like um, yet another recycled Disney plot. It wasn't uh, Moana or Encanto, but at least... This film was trying to shove woke, wasn't trying to shove shove wokeness down the uh, viewers' throats. Maybe not wokeness, but the anti-god allegory and the uh, "you can be your own god" message was in this story. However, the neo-paganism is evident even when listening to the soundtrack. However, audiences have given the film an eighty-one percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Viewers are just relieved that there was uh, no crazy culture war attack launched on them and their children for once. They're also relieved that Wish was um, on more familiar, predictable Disney grounds. The Walt Disney Company itself is now admitting the folly of its rot um, uh, strategy of wading into the culture wars in its um, annual investor uh, form um, that it's um, obligated to file with Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC. It's also required to disclose any risk to prospective investors. Well, the filing is pretty straightforward. It details how it, its profits are tied to creating content that is dictated by its audiences, and that is um, uh, ever-changing task. However, the key part of that risk disclosure comes later. Further, consumers' perceptions of our uh, position on matters of public interest, including our efforts to achieve certain um, of our environmental and social goals, often differ widely and present risks to our reputation and brands, they admit. In other words, Disney knows that its ideological and political stance on environmentalism and social agendas aren't welcome or appreciated by the consumer base, but the company is going to carry on doing it anyway. Disney sees that pushing wokeness and cultural corruption on children is hurting, but it doesn't want to stop. Uh, That's one um, business model that you might consider. At least shareholders have been warned. Now, parents, you've been warned. Disney is not indicating that it's going to reverse course. It's going to continue on the course that has displeased families and consumers for quite some time. Well, the mysterious respiratory illnesses that are reportedly wreaking havoc in hospitals in China are now raising concerns for the medical community across the country and impacting Washington, D.C., according to new reports. It's been learned that hospitals, emergency rooms, urgent care locations and clinics are reporting seeing an uptick in uh, sick visits, pneumonia by some descriptions. The World Health Organization is also reporting 
um, reviewing data from China after video surfaced showing several groups of people apparently being treated for what's being described as a mystery respiratory illness predominantly impacting children. Uh, Chinese health officials are not in, uh, insisting the surge is respiratory illness is caused by the flu and known pathogens. On Thursday, Chinese health officials told the World Health Organization, or WHO, that they haven't detected any unusual or novel diseases regarding any an increase in respiratory illness and pneumonia in children. According to the World Health Organization, outside scientists said the situation called for close monitoring, but they weren't convinced that the recent spike in respiratory illnesses in China signaled the start of a new global outbreak. The arrival of new flu strains or other viruses capable of triggering pandemics typically start with undiagnosed clusters of respiratory illnesses, according to WHO. Both SARS and COVID were first reported as unusual types of pneumonia. So we'll continue to follow the story as it develops in the People's Republic. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, back momentarily. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. Coming up later in the five o'clock hour, a conversation with Kevin Terrio, senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. We'll talk about the uh, Seattle law that requires churches to um, underwrite abortion through their health insurance programs. We'll find out the challenge of one particular church with the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, the prison stabbing of George Floyd's convicted killer, the disgraced ex-Minneapolis cop Derek Chauvin, was a predictable attack on a high-profile target at obvious odds with many of the fellow inmates, according to experts. Chauvin's condition isn't immediately clear. Federal Bureau of Prisons authorities said they could not give an update on his uh, injuries earlier this week, citing privacy and safety concerns. Neither Chauvin's family or his defense team has received an update on his condition this week, according to his attorney, Gregory Erickson, who called the lack of news completely outrageous. It appears to be indicative of a poorly run facility and indicates how Derek's assault was allowed to happen, he told the Associated Press. No prison employees were hurt in the incident, according to the uh, Bureau of Prison staff. Um, isolated and contained the uh, incident before performing life-saving measures on the victim, which may tell you something about the extent, uh, who was transported to a local hospital. But a former prison minister who hosted the Lighter Side of Serial Killers podcast and speaks with dozens of inmates around the country on a regular basis warned that he was a dead man walking his uh, first day in prison. This definitely won't be the last attack, he said. In fact, he said he was surprised it took this long. Prison gangs notoriously target high-profile prisoners, he said, and Chauvin is among the most infamous ex-cops behind bars in the country. Well, a group of Republican attorneys general are pushing the Biden administration to back down on a new rule they say will effectively exclude Christian families from fostering kids and jeopardize the foster care system nationwide. Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall, along with 18 others, um, GOP colleagues, sent a letter Monday to the Department of Health and Human Services alerting them that a new proposed rule that alters requirements for foster care families violates the Constitution and discriminates against people who practice the Christian faith. In addition to discriminating against religion, the attorneys general, they argue that the proposed rule will harm children by limiting the number of available foster homes, harm families by risking kinship placements and harm states by increasing costs and decreasing care options. End quote. Well, these injuries 
injuries will be suffered while HHS fails to solve a problem that the proposed rule does not even prove exists in foster care. The AG's right. The rule, safe and appropriate foster care placement requirements, would mandate that foster parents and families utilize the foster child's identified pronouns, chosen name, and allow the child to dress in an age-appropriate manner that the child believes reflects their self-identified gender identity and expression. According to the letter, the rule seeks to accomplish indirectly what the Supreme Court found unconstitutional just two years ago. Remove faith-based providers from the foster care system if they will not conform their religious beliefs on sexual orientation and gender identity. Well, the Supreme Court in 2021, in a case called Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, ruled that Philadelphia's refusal to contract with a Catholic social service group unless it agreed to certify same-sex couples as foster parents violated the First Amendment. The letter notes that HHS anticipates that the number of children in the foster care system would increase to roughly 416,500 by 2027. As of 2022, there were reportedly 391,000 children in foster care. A lead United Nations agency overseeing food and agriculture policy is expected to issue a roadmap in the coming weeks, which will call on the West, including America, to dramatically reduce its meat consumption. The U.N.'s Food and Agriculture Organization will publish a so-called Global Food Systems Roadmap uh, during the upcoming CO2, uh, COP28 Climate Summit in Dubai, which will kick off on Thursday and extend nearly two weeks until mid-December. FAO's uh, first-of-its-kind document will recommend nations that overconsume meat, overconsume meat, to limit their consumption as part of a broader effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, Bloomberg reported. In addition to issuing guidelines for reducing meat consumption in the West, the FAO is expected to highlight how farmers should adapt to erratic weather and tackle their emissions produced from food waste and use of fertilizer, tackle their um, other issues as well, according to Bloomberg. Well, the recommendations, which the U.S. COP28 uh, delegation may sign on to will not be binding. Overall, the roadmap will seek to guide policy on lowering the climate impact of the global agriculture industry, which has rarely received such attention as past UN climate conferences. Well, past COP summits have been far more keen on addressing emissions generated from global power, transportation, and manufacturing sectors. In the U.S., though, agriculture alone generates roughly 10% of total greenhouse gas emissions, federal data shows. The American agriculture sector accounts for just 1.4% of global emissions and has implemented a wide range of solutions, making it the nation's lowest-emitting economic sector. America's farmers and ranchers are climate heroes, reducing emissions while providing abundant and affordable food, fiber and fuel. House Agriculture Chairman, uh, Committee Chairman Glenn Thompson uh, told Fox News Digital in a statement, regulating producers out of business in the U.S. will not effectively address global climate change, but export production to foreign countries will with hostile regimes and worse emissions profiles will harm food security and affordability. Simply put, The world needs American farmers and ranchers more than the U.N., he added. Well, leaders of American religious communities and organizations pledged their support to Israel and the Jewish people this week while urging Congress to take action now to help fund Israel's uh, defense and fight anti-Semitism. Faith and Freedom Coalition leaders were joined by more than a dozen other religious leaders from across the country and writing a letter to House Speaker Mike Johnson, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell this week. 
We, the undersigned leaders of America's religious communities and organizations, join herein to defend the Jewish people, the state of Israel, and the values that unite us as a people of faith, they wrote, noting that the group represents many faith traditions and have come together in one voice to defend our shared humanity against barbarism and terror. Again, in quote, the leaders called Hamas barbaric terror, uh, their barbaric terror attack on Israel on the 7th of October, the most significant massacre of Jewish people since the Holocaust. In the wake of this horrific ter- uh, terror, anti-Semitic protest erupt- it erupted in the United States and around the world. We will not remain silent in response, they wrote. The leaders noted that despite the anti-Semitic protests breaking out in cities across the nation, the majority of Americans continue to stand by their Jewish brothers and sisters in the United States and in the Jewish homeland of Israel. As Jews remain the target of more than half of uh, religion-motivated hate crimes in the United States, and Israel faces a fight for its survival, Americans of all faiths and backgrounds must take action now, they wrote. The faith leaders issued a united condemnation of anti-Semitism and proclaimed their support for Israel's right to self-defense. The United States government and the people representative in Congress cannot waver both in combating anti-Semitism and in supporting the state of Israel, they wrote. The faith leaders called on Congress to make its a top priority to advance legislation that would help to fund Israel's defense as soon as possible. They also um, urged Congress to pass the Countering Hate Against Israel by Federal Contractors Act, which is bipartisan legislation that would ensure U.S. taxpayer dollars are not subsidizing the anti-Semitic movement to boycott Israel out of existence. The faith leaders also called for the passage of the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act, which is bipartisan legislation that would revoke tax-exempt status of universities that refuse to fight anti-Semitism on campus. That measure would also direct the Biden administration to use the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism while investigating hate crimes. The faith leaders also demanded the passage of the Maximum Pressure Act, which would require any new deal with Iran to be ratified by the U.S. Senate. It would also restrict the president's ability to lift sanctions on Iran. The leaders also called for the passage of the No Funds for Iranian Terrorist Act, which would permanently freeze the six billion dollars of Iranian fun, of um, the Iranian fund that were um, released as part of the Biden administration's 2023 hostage deal. Republican uh, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee is launching an ambitious effort to take school choice statewide today, and he'll uh, have some company. For the announcement in Nashville with Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders in tow, along with supportive legislators and families, Lee announced the Education Freedom Scholarship Act, which his office says will extend school choice to every family across uh, rural and urban Tennessee communities, putting parents at the forefront of their children's education and giving them all access to the best school for them. Sanders signed an expensive, uh, rather an expansive school access to the best school for uh, choice voucher bill into law for Arkansas in March, calling it a transformational education plan. When I ran for governor, she said, I uh, said every Tennessean deserves access uh, to a good job, a good school and a safe neighborhood. Lee told Fox News Digital in a statement, we've made great strides in education, but there is more work to do to ensure Tennessee continues to lead the nation. It's time for a statewide school choice plan that empowers parents, equips students for success and allows Tennessee taxpayers to decide how their tax dollars 
are invested. The Education Freedom Scholarship Act will empower Tennessee parents with a freedom to pick the right school for their child while giving families a choice where their taxpayer dollars are spent. According to a memo, uh, the current pilot program called the Education Savings Account has more than 3,400 families applying to join and more than 2,400 students enrolled in participating non-public schools. According to the memo, the uh, participating students get about $9,000 a year to attend eligible private schools, according to local uh, media. The proposal would change during the uh, legislative process, but uh, Lee's plan calls for 20,000 scholarships to be made available to Tennessee students, including 10,000 scholarships for students who are at or below 300% of the federal poverty level, have a disability, or are eligible for existing pilot programs and are uh, um, an additional 10,000 scholarships available to a universal pool of students entitled to attend a public school, according to the governor's office. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour of today's program, a conversation with Kevin Terrio. He's senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. We'll talk about that Washington law uh, that now requires churches to, through their insurance, provide uh, coverage for abortions and abortifacients. He'll be joining us later in the second hour of today's program. Well, Asian Americans fear race will still be a hidden factor in college admissions after the Supreme Court's landmark decision last June banning affirmative action. The Los Angeles Times reports that a coalition of Asian American students and advocates argued that Asian applicants were being racially discriminated against in the admissions process at Harvard University and the University of North Carolina. The Supreme Court granted them a victory, ruling that the two schools' admissions practices violated the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. However, Asian-American immigrant parents shared that they still feel desperate and in the dark about what it takes for their children to be accepted into elite universities, fearing the court ruling won't stop universities from rejecting their applicants, their applications based on race. Some families are even paying tens of thousands of dollars for consultants to help their families navigate the college system. These families need to be strategic when applying to avoid anti-Asian discrimination, one consultant told the L.A. Times. President Biden's political opponents have been censored by big tech a whopping 162 times combined, according to the Media Research Center. The Media Research Center censors track.org researchers Heather Moon and Gabriella something conducted the study that found 169 cases of censorship against 2024 presidential hopefuls, with only seven of the instances being against Biden himself across Google, YouTube, Facebook, X, Instagram, TikTok and LinkedIn. The year 2024 has not yet begun, but election interfering censorship is well underway as big tech companies have already censored every presidential candidate, Moon and her associate wrote. From censoring candidates' campaign websites to fact checks to removing content and accounts altogether, social media platforms have been hard at work interfering in the upcoming election and silencing the voices of those who seek to represent and lead the United States, they wrote. Big tech censorship impacted the accounts of all 23 candidates that MRC had been tracking, regardless of party affiliation, but it has been particularly harmful for Biden's opponents. The study 
uh, found that big tech platforms have manipulated the message of all 2024 presidential candidates at least once. And Vivek, Vivek Ramaswamy has been censored 18 times to top the list. Ramaswamy was censored multiple times by Google, including its YouTube platform, as well as by LinkedIn, with his opinion on climate change landing him in the most trouble with the big tech oligarchs, Moon and her associate wrote, of all the tech giants, Google censored Ramaswamy the most, including not showing his campaign website on the first page of its research results. Google's artificial intelligence chatbot Bard uh, uh, left him off its list when MRC researchers asked it to uh, rank the 2024 presidential candidates. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was censored 17 times to finish second, with 15 of them coming from the Coming when, rather, he was a Democrat and to uh, uh, after his he switched to independent. Nikki Haley faced censorship 14 times. Larry Elder, 13 times. And former President Trump was censored nine times, according to the study. Trump created his own platform, Truth Social, and isn't on the other platforms. And yet he's still the fifth most censored candidate. MRC President Brent Bozell said the study found Google was responsible for the most widespread election interfering censor a censorship of presidential primary candidates and that Google owned YouTube worked to interfere in the election with 37 cases that range from context labels to outright removal of videos. Google search and YouTube are the biggest offenders when it comes to silencing Trump, according to the study. However, Republicans weren't the only ones censored by such companies. Biden's chief in-party rival, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., received the brunt of the censorship on the Democratic side. Big Tech blistered Kennedy Jr. with censorship 15 times before he reclassified as an independent presidential candidate, uh, they said, noting that seven of Kennedy's videos have been removed from YouTube. Biden has, uh, was censored seven times, according to the study. Other notable 2024 presidential hopefuls include Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis, and Tim Scott, who is no longer in the race, who were also censored seven times, respectively, according to the study. Well, the deal to extend the current four-day ceasefire between Hamas and Israel in exchange for additional hostages was Reached Monday afternoon, the hope is an additional two-day ceasefire will allow more time for hostages to be released by Hamas, including Americans, in exchange for violent Palestinian prisoners being held in Israeli jails. The announcement was made by Gutter, the country harboring Hamas leaders in swanky hotels and working as a broker between the two parties. Eleven more hostages were released from Gaza on Monday, 12 today, in exchange for 33 Palestinians held in Israel, Qatari officials said. Uh, tonight, 11 more precious lives come back home to Israel, nine of them children, even after the release of dozens of hostages. Still, 160 innocent Israelis remain in captivity, demand their release. Well, National Review points out that the White House spokesperson John Kirby said earlier Monday that no Americans were believed to be among the latest group of hostages. And when asked how many Americans are being held, he could not give a decisive number. Elon Musk said that those intent on murder must be neutralized after touring an Israeli community recently attacked by Hamas just weeks after the billionaire described an anti-Semitic social media post on X as the actual truth. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Monday, he took Musk on a tour through um, a kibbutz attacked on October 7th. Netanyahu later showed Musk a video of the attacks on Israeli civilians and the two men then live streamed a conversation on X. Musk later met with Israeli President Itzhak, uh, or Isaac uh, Herzog, along with uh, relatives of some of the hostages taken to Gaza. Herzog's office said the meeting had the aim of 
uh, revealing clearly and in depth the massive the massacre that occurred last month. It also said the meeting would emphasize the need to halt the rising anti-Semitism on the social media network. Asios uh, reported that Elon Musk told Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Monday that he wants to help rebuild Gaza after the end of the Israeli-Hamas war. We have to demilitarize Gaza after the destruction of Hamas, and we have to de-radicalize Gaza, and then we have to also rebuild Gaza, Netanyahu said in a live uh, chat with Musk on X. I'd like to help as well, Musk said, before mentioning the importance of rebuilding Japan and Germany after World War II. The war with Hamas is forcing us to decide between Israel's body and our national soul. A Times of Israel blogger Michael Oren says the war with Hamas is forcing uh, Israel to choose. Israel was, recreate, was created, he goes on to say, with a double identity, Jewish and democratic. Yet that duality was mirrored by Israel's twin missions to guarantee our fundamental security and sanctity of our citizens. The state would defend itself while promising that those who we send off to defend it will never be left behind. Israel pledged to ensure both our physical and moral existence, our body as well as our soul. This is our fundamental nightmarish dilemma. Either we give priority to restoring our deterrence power and returning the more than 200,000 displaced Israelis to their homes, or we focus primarily on securing the hostages' freedom. Either we convince uh, Iran and its proxies not to attack us again and persuade additional Arab countries to make peace with an indomitable Jewish state, or we fulfill Israel's oath to never abandon our fellow Israelis. Either we accept an Israel that um, uh, may well be rendered defenseless, or an Israel that our citizens may no longer be willing to defend. It is an impossible choice to be made. Well, math can oppress students of color due to the inequitable system it was developed under. According to a slide presentation at the University of Oregon's 2023 Mathematics Conference review, uh, reviewed rather by the Daily Signal, Oregon high school math teacher Jared Ratcliffe delivered a lecture called Mathematics as a Tool of Oppression at the Northwest's Mathematics Conference in Portland on the 14th of October, which was sponsored by the University of Oregon. Recent politicization of mathematics has driven questions about its pedagogy in our schools, but those questions fail to recognize mathematics as a potentially oppressive tool. Ratcliffe, um, or Ratliff's uh, description of the lecture reads, Mathematics is our single most powerful academic building block, but the power it holds frequently allows it to be to inhibit discovery and societal good. Well, he is interested in exploring intersectionality of social justice and global power dynamics created by math systems, according to his biographical information on the math conference website. The math education system in America was developed 200 years ago when only the children of white landowners were educated, according to Ratliff's um, a presentation. It only uh, it's not saying that spe- that uh, specific questions or standards themselves are racist, a slide depicting uh, in the lecture said. But if it, it, it uh, if the way we are teaching continually leaves people of color behind, we wouldn't um, why wouldn't we dismantle the process um, for something that's more equitable? More on that when we return. But we've got news here at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with uh, Kevin 
Terrio, he's senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. We're going to talk about the law in Seattle passed in 2018. It's being challenged by a church there. Uh, under the law, the, uh, the church is required to provide uh, health insurance that provides abortion and abortifacient coverage. We'll get into that. Uh, in our next segment. Just before the break, we were talking about the Teachers Conference here in Portland, sponsored by the University of Oregon. There was a slide presentation at the uh, 2023 Mathematics Conference. Oregon High School math teacher Jared Ratliff, he delivered a lecture called Mathematics as a Tool of Oppression at the Northwest Mathematics Conference here in Portland on the 14th of October. Uh, He says he's interested in exploring intersectionality of social justice and global power dynamics created by math systems, according to his biographical information on the uh, math conference website. It's not saying that specific questions or standards themselves are racist, a slide uh, reads. But if the way we're teaching continually leaves people of color behind, why wouldn't I want to dismantle the process uh, that is somewhat responsible for that inequality, he goes on to say. Well, only 30% of Oregon students tested as proficient in math in 2022, according to the Oregon Department of Education. Ratliff is involved in uh, Oregon's Math Alignment Project, which released a series of modules on equitable math practices to disrupt the, and I'm quoting, systematic inequalities of schooling. Discussion questions in the modules encourage teachers to consider how their potential bias might inadvertently reinforce inequalities. Now, we're talking about math, which is, you know, pretty hard and fast and direct. Anyway, he goes on to say, my dream is to see math fully and mutually used as a tool not to subvert, but instead for liberation, he wrote in the session's description. He told the Daily Signal that he's seeking a way to make math better. I've always loved math. Uh, He said in an email, I've taught it in high school for 16 years. I don't think it is racist. Well, that's good to hear. I do think it's oppressive to many people. Now, is that in itself racist, suggesting that certain groups don't have a proficiency toward math? That makes me uh, wonder what is his underlying thinking. But he listed three steps to flatten the so-called math hierarchy in his slideshow. Identify a structure or system with mathematics as its bias. Identify those in positions of power in this structure and identify those traditionally at the mercy of this structure. Apparently, minorities are at the mercy of the structure in order to dismantle the hierarchy. Uh, I, I question and I can't give you a definitive answer whether or not he in attempting to address racism is himself suggesting a racist view that certain groups just don't have a proficiency and therefore we need to dumb it down in order for them to you know feel better about themselves as a black woman i find that uh, view offensive and rather prevalent among those who are bleeding hearts anyway we'll well we'll be generous and suggest that maybe that's not what he's thinking in other news saint mary's college in notre dame indiana will begin allowing men who identify as women to enroll at the college in the fall in 2024 according to an email the president katie conboy told faculty in an email sent Tuesday afternoon that St. Mary's will consider undergraduate applicants whose sex assigned at birth is female or who consistently live and identify as women, in other words, men. Uh, That news was first reported by the Notre Dame student newspaper, The Observer. The college is still determining the practices that will follow from the policy, Convoy's email said. She wrote that she... uh, selected a group of individuals to serve on a presidential tax uh, task force for gender identity and expression that's charged with gathering information and best practices from other Catholic colleges and women's colleges and will present their recommendations on student housing and considerations. Uh, we are by no means the first Catholic women's college to adopt a policy with this scope. 
Convoy wrote in the email. In drafting the language for this update, I have relied on the guidance of the executive team and others to ensure that our message is not only in line with best practices for today's college students, but that it also encompasses our commitment to operate as a Catholic women's college. And the two seem to perhaps be at odds. It would seem that operating as a Catholic women's college, that would answer the question. Nonetheless, advocates for protecting women's spaces were quick to condemn the move. Uh, In the name of empowering women, St. Mary's has abandoned women. Independent Women's Voice Advisor Riley Gaines uh, says it would be comical if there weren't real consequences women have to endure. Men would not be put uh, would not put up with this mistreatment and gaslighting for a second. It's time women take back our spaces, our opportunities and our language. St. Mary's College is no longer Catholic. Junior St. Mary's student Claire Bedig told the Daily Signal. It's no longer a women's institution. This is fraudulent misrepresentation at best. Every student should be entitled to a refund for fraudulent misrepresentation. An attorney should file the class action lawsuit against the college. They have abandoned their faith and they've abandoned the women. No woman uh, should be forced to share a bathroom or living quarters with a man, end quote. Well, St. Mary's uh, alumni Claire Ann Alf also slammed the decision, saying that St. Mary's College has yet again failed to uphold an authentic Catholic worldview. Well, rioters uh, with the Stop Cop City movement in Atlanta face domestic terrorism and racketeering charges for repeated attempts to stop the lawful construction of a police and firefighter training facility, including the use of Molotov cocktails to harm police officers and damage construction equipment. Well, the newly revealed Journal of Manuel Esteban more names follow an agitator who uh, reportedly opened fire at police before officers fatally shot him on the 18th of January reveals how climate alarmism and leftist grievance uh, motivated uh, a written desire to become ungovernable and kill police officers. Among other things, he wrote, my gender is a loaded gun pointed at capitalism's heart. Wow. Last month, Georgia district attorney, a George Christian announced that the police who shot the individual will not face any charges because the use of lethal force was objectively reasonable since the, uh, the subject had fired his nine millimeter pistol at police officers, injuring him ungovernable. My gender is a loaded gun pointed at capitalism's heart. I'm not even quite sure how to picture that, but that said that was the uh, threat. Coming up, Kevin uh, Terrio, senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom on a church and their desire to exercise their religion freely. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Washington State Law, Senate Bill 62. 62- 19 forces churches to cover elective abortions in their health insurance plans. So Cedar Park Assembly of God Church, their insurance carrier, inserted abortion coverage, including surgical abortion, directly into their health plan. Well, Alliance Defending Freedom's attorneys representing the Seattle area church filed a 
a um, opening brief on Wednesday with the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit after a lower court ruled that the church must violate its constitutionally protected pro-life religious beliefs and abide by the state's mandate that most Washington employers provide abortion coverage for employees. Well, here to talk with us about all of this is Kevin Terrio. He is a senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom on this Seattle church and their valiant fight against this unconstitutional mandate. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. It's good to be on with you again, Georgine. Give us a little bit of this history. Now, our Washington listeners would be familiar with Senate Bill 6219, but others listening may not. Give us a little bit of the backstory. Yeah, so uh, about six years ago, the state of Washington decided that uh, it was going to require anyone, any business, any employer that covers maternity care to also cover abortion. Um, There were some limited exceptions, but there was no exception for a church. And of course, it was forcing, by doing that, it was forcing churches to fund uh, abortions. And um, and most people, it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on, but most people say, all right, you're forcing a church to fund an abortion for its employee benefit plan. That doesn't sound right, uh, but that's exactly what they did. And uh, unfortunately, the federal court in Seattle um, upheld, uh, rejected our challenge to that um, unconstitutional law. Now, some might suggest, well, this is a church, people who are working for uh, and with the church are not going to pursue abortion, so why pursue this uh, this lawsuit? I mean, I know the answer to that, but could you address that uh, response to this this challenge? Yeah, well, well, there are two two answers to it. The first is, well, if that's the case, then why would you attempt to force the church to <laughs> fund abortions? Um, so that's the first answer. The second answer is um, that some of the people that work for the church have dependents. Um, that don't work from the, for the church and are covered by the insurance policy and could use it uh, um, in, under federal law now. Many uh, many um, parents have uh, children that are 26 years of age on their um, health care, and so um, so it's uh, it's it's definitely a possibility that they would be required to fund abortion. Yeah, yeah. What they're being uh, required to do, not even asked, but required to do, is to act contrary to their religious beliefs in violation of the Constitution. Can you explain a a bit uh, more fully from your legal perspective what this challenge will entail and what the Supreme Court has said on this subject previously? Sure, sure. So the the Supreme Court has said that um, you can't force um, an individual uh, business, even a business, much less a church, um, to cover abortion um, or abortion-causing drugs um, in their employee benefit plan um, in violation of their convictions. That's that's been pretty uh, pretty clear. The, the the Hobby Lobby case, the Little Sisters of the Poor case, both of them held that. And so, um, but and 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 the Supreme Court has held in the Masterpiece case, which is one that ADF mm-hmm. litigated, that um, you can't uh, you can't express hostility or you can't um, force people uh, to violate uh, their convictions because you're um, hostile or you disagree with their point of view. And and so that you know th- this situation. Forcing churches to fund abortion violates all of those provisions, and you know it's really, it's really there's there's an old case, the Smith case, back from um, 1990 that says that um, that a law that applies to everybody and has no exceptions 
even if it violates someone's rights, even if it, require, if it requires them to do something their religious beliefs require, um, prohibit, then that law is still okay. But this, this law has some exceptions, and so that provision shouldn't even apply. So if you even get down into the nitty-gritty, um, for instance, this law doesn't even require doctors or hospitals who have employees to cover their abortions. Yeah, I found that rather interesting. Washington offers some conscience protections in some areas, health care providers, uh, religiously sponsored health carriers and health care facilities. But somehow churches didn't make that list. This is puzzling. That's right. Yeah. So there is a provision in that conscience statute that covers churches, but it's not as robust in it. And it says that, um, yeah, churches can have an exemption, but that but the uh, but the. Uh, health insurance company still has to provide that objectionable coverage, the abortion in this instance, and they can charge uh, the church an extra fee uh, for having to provide it. So, so it it, it really is uh, a protection uh, that doesn't mean anything. Essentially, Washington is inserting itself into the internal affairs of a church and coercing the church to, to um, live outside of its belief system. What What is the challenge, the legal challenge that you have filed, and what might we expect to happen next? So we have we have two related legal challenges. The first is there's the free exercise clause in the First Amendment says that the government can't um, coerce uh, a church to violate its religious convictions. And, and here it would coerce them to do so by making it impossible for them to get health insurance coverage for its, pe- for its people that complies with its beliefs. And there's another part of that First Amendment protection that says that the government has to stay out of the church's internal uh, policies and, and a church's ability to hire people that agree with its um, uh, that agree with it with its teachings and live according to those teachings, and to provide health care coverage that complies with its teachings um, is something that the Supreme Court has said um, is part of the First Amendment, and it's called church autonomy. And this law clearly violates Cedar Park's church autonomy. So, where does this uh, challenge go from this point? You've had two courts. Um, uh, determine, decide against the church, what happens next? Well, that's that's a little bit um, inaccurate. So the, this court in the, the district court um, in Seattle ruled against the court, ruled against the church twice. The first time it dismissed the case, we took it up to the Court of Appeals at the Ninth Circuit, and it said, no, 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 this, the, the, the church has a valid claim. So the the uh, district court allowed the trial court allowed the case to go forward, but then after the case went forward, the court said, um, "Your claim, yes, you have a valid claim, um, but you don't succeed because this applies to everybody, which isn't really true. There are exceptions. Mm-hmm. So we're appealing that second ruling to the Ninth Circuit, and we fully expect the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to reverse and say that the church should win." Well, that was my next question. How optimistic are you? I think in the long run, if it eventually, for example, ended up before the Supreme Court, there's no question how they might rule. But this that would be a very long and, and difficult pro, uh, process. Your expectation is the Ninth Circuit will do the right thing in this case eventually. And what kind of timeline are you anticipating? Well, so we just filed our brief last week, mm-hmm. as you mentioned per- previously, and then the state has to file their brief um, in about a month. We'll get 
We'll finish up the briefing. We'll finish up the papers with the court next year. And then there will be an oral argument probably sometime. We'll present arguments to the court probably sometime um, late spring in the summer. And we should hear, get a ruling from the court by the end of next year. Mm, By the end of next year. In the meantime, Mm -hmm. Cedar Park's insurance will continue to provide the coverage and charge them for that. Is there any um, possibility that they would... Uh, be refunded those um, those funds that are now required to pay for what they do not support. Unfortunately, no. I, I, unfortunately, they're going to have to. That that money is is not recoverable against the state for a lot of technical constitutional reasons. But um, I think that going forward, uh, if not circuit, then I, I agree with you. The Supreme Court is going to hold that um, that. You know, maternity health care, health insurance, that's meant to support a mother welcoming a new life into the world. And um, and what this does is this law requires the 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 church to reject that and end uh, a life through abortion or at least support that. And uh, and, and, and most people agree um, that that sort of coerced funding of abortion um, is right. Now, you're representing one church in the Seattle area. Will the decision ultimately made by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that we anticipate will be favorable, will that impact all churches in the state of Washington? It, it should impact all churches in the state of Washington, and it will have a positive impact on all churches um, on the West Coast, because the Ninth Circuit covers the West Coast. Yeah. So, um, so it'll be difficult for other states to try to violate churches' rights and uh, and force them to violate their faith in court in order to provide quality health care. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. I appreciate Alliance Defending Freedom so much, and I appreciate you joining us here today to help us understand the case, and we'll continue to watch with great interest. You're welcome, Georgine. Thanks again for having me. Thank you. And by the way, we can also pray as this moves through the court as well. Again, Kevin Terrio is a senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom and the uh, church in Seattle challenging uh, the funding of abortion um, insurance that they are now required, as every church in the state of Washington is now required to provide. If you're listening in the Seattle area, we are out of time. I do appreciate your joining us and want to thank Pedro Bartes for engineering and producing in the Seattle area. If you're listening from Portland, we'll continue with some additional headlines. So stay with us and have a great night. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, the Portland only edition. Well, over 32,000 babies have been saved since the Dobbs decision, we're being told. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June, at least 30,000 babies have been born that would have otherwise been aborted. Now, how you make that calculation, I'm not certain, but it is encouraging given all of the other news on the front of abortion. The 32,000 babies were born in states that enacted some form of abortion restrictions, according to the study conducted by the Institute of Labor Economics that looked at the effects of the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. It returned the issue of abortion, as you know, to the states. Our primary analysis indicates that in the first six months of 2023, births rose by an average of 2.3 percent in states enforcing total abortion bans compared to a control group of states where abortion rights remained protected. Lila Rose weighed in, saying that absolutely amazing 32,000 boys and girls were saved, protected from being killed by abortion because of the fall of Roe 
Bureau and the life-saving laws that went into effect. Every one of those children is a miracle. This is why we do this work. Now, for those who are discouraged by what we're seeing following the reversal of Roe versus Wade, find some encouragement in that um, in these numbers. Well, the ripple effect, 40 Days for Life, also adds uh, the ripple effect of Roe versus Wade's overturning a breathtaking wave of life with 32,000 more babies born. Let's celebrate every heartbeat, every breath, every new chance at life. Well, Oregon's largest school district said late Sunday it had reached a tentative agreement with its teachers unions and roughly 45,000 students would be back in school on Monday after more than three weeks without classes. Well, the agreement must still be voted on by teachers who've been on the picket line since the first of this month over issues of pay, class sizes and planning time. It has also has to approve to be approved by the school board, but the union agreed that classes could resume while those votes go forward. Portland Public School students missed 11 days of school before the district beginning its week-long Thanksgiving break. The union has been bargaining for a new contract with Portland Public Schools since its previous one expired back in June. The school district has said it didn't have enough funds to fulfill the union's needs and its demands. Well, in June, the state legislature approved a record $10.2 billion K-12 budget for the next two years, but school district representatives said that wasn't enough. Well, we'll see what happens next. In other news, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau blamed MAGA thinking for the Conservative Party's decision to vote against an updated uh, update rather to the Canadian-Ukraine Free Trade Agreement. Now, let me see if I understand this correctly. Make America great again is an American phrase that was coined by an American president and used to bludgeon Americans who embrace the idea. So you have the Canadian prime minister accusing his own people of MAGA thinking. Okay. I guess it makes sense. Well, he rejected the explanation offered by the Conservative Party leader, Pierre something French, that the reason the party voted unanimously against the agreement was over concerns about carbon tax wording. Well, he didn't buy that. Justin Trudeau, Ian Miles Chiang Weizen, says the Canadian conservatives are being tricked by mega conservatives who parrot Russian disinformation. So you've gone quite a long way around there. PJ Media also weighs in, saying Trudeau has been scaring Canadians about the MAGA boogeyman since the Freedom Convoys of 2022, which partially shut down commerce in the U.S. and enabled Trudeau to use the Draconian Emergencies Act to break up the protests. Well, the protests were 100 percent homegrown Canadian and had nothing to do with Trump or MAGA. But you use those four letters put together and it puts the fear of God in just about anybody these days. I think they're using it in China now. Whenever Trudeau finds it convenient, he pulls out his blame MAGA card and plays it to the hilt. Well, the Jerusalem District Attorney's Office charged former NBC journalist Marwat Al-Azza with incitement of, to terrorism and identification with a terrorist group, the Hebrew news site Yannette reported. Aza was arrested about two weeks ago on Thursday, November 16th, following posts. She had made her personal Facebook page about the October 7th attack on Israel. And speaking to reporters at the White House Monday, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre touted the success of the Biden economy. She then had trouble answering a basic question about why Americans aren't buying what she's selling. When President Trump was in office, inflation was 0.7 percent. Today, it's still near 4 percent. Uh, costs of everyday household items, energy and food are still through the roof. When we walked into this administration, the economy was on a tailspin, KJP said. 
That is the fact because of the last administration, because of the Trump administration, she said. Well, RNC research uh, begged to differ, saying wages for working families have gone up while inflation has come down 65 percent. Pricing has gone up by 17.6 percent since Biden took office, while real wages have declined by 3 percent. You can draw your own conclusions. Testing shows that Instagram algorithm pushes salacious content involving children to adults. There's the headline. As meta platforms attract large communities of users interested in pedophile content, the Wall Street Journal reports that Instagram's Reels video service is designed to show user streams of short videos on topics the system decides will interest them, such as sports, fashion, and humor. Well, the meta platform's own social app does the same thing for users its algorithm decides might have a purient interest in children. Testing by uh, um, the Wall Street Journal showed the journal sought to determine what Instagram's Reels algorithm would recommend to test accounts set up to follow only young gymnasts, cheerleaders and other teen and preteen influencers active on the platform. Instagram's system served jarring doses of salacious content to those test accounts, including risque footage of children as well as overtly sexual adult videos and ads for some of the biggest U.S. brands. The Canadian Center for Child Protection, a child protection group, separately ran similar tests on its own with similar results. You have been warned. Well, on Monday, President Biden touted his administration's progress in addressing the sustained high inflation that has made Americans collectively poorer. Indeed, cumulative inflation has risen by more than 19 percent since prior to the pandemic. And while the government's overreaction to the pandemic, shuttering the the vast swaths of the U.S. economy for months, while at the same time handing out checks to people who found themselves unemployed, was the initial catalyst for spiking inflation. It's been Biden's massive spending policies that have ensured inflation remains high. Well, Americans aren't buying erroneous claims that the economy is actually pretty good. So Team Biden aims to address that by exerting more government control over everything you consume. The president's latest solution is a promise to lower inflation by fixing, in quotes, the supply chain, which was broken by his own administration, primarily Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg when he was working. The new White House Council on Supply Chain's Resilience uh, will supposedly strengthen the U.S. supply chain and thereby lower costs for Americans by implementing control and mandates. We're from the government and we're here to help. What could possibly Go wrong. That's a rhetorical question. Well, if you live in a blue state, you're likely to pay more for electric um, electricity and gas than Americans living in red states. A recent report from the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, has found that residents of Democrat-run states that have implemented aggressive climate change policies are shelling out more than their hard-earned, uh, more of their hard-earned dollars for their energy needs. Residents of California, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Vermont, New York, and New Jersey, they make up seven of the most expensive eight continental states for average electricity costs, while the Republican-run states of Nebraska, Louisiana, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Utah, Wyoming, and Idaho are seven of the eight lowest-cost states. When it comes to gas prices, a similar divide is evident. California, Washington, Oregon, and Illinois have an average price per gallon of $3.80 to $4.85, whereas the red states of Mississippi, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Missouri 
average $3.15 per gallon or less. According to Alec, the significant difference in the average price of electricity and fuel is directly tied to a state's green energy mandates, or its so-called renewable portfolio standards. Well, the report notes in the 48 contiguous states, the 16 with the highest electricity prices all have an RPS in place, as do 18 of the highest priced 20 states. Hmm. Well, if anyone ought to get his history right, it'd be the Secretary of Education. But alas, Miguel Cardona needs some remedial history, or maybe just to be reminded. Yesterday, he said, I think it was President Reagan who said, we're from the government, we're here to help. Of course, it was Reagan who said that, but as the fact checkers like to say, Cardona was missing context. You see, what the former president actually said was, the nine most (laughs) terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Well, Reagan's obvious point was to lampoon big governments leftists like Cardona, who make a mess of everything by exerting government control over so many aspects of our lives. It's tyrannical and terrifying. Cardona not only missed the point, he exemplified the point. We're going to take a break, but we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, organized shoplifting crime has become a major problem in New York and elsewhere, and it's only getting worse. In 2022 alone, business owners lost roughly $4.4 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars from retail theft. As this crime problem has been getting worse, store owners have called on Democrat Governor Kathy Hochul to tackle the issue, but she has thus far refused to do so. Instead, just last week, the New York legislature passed a bipartisan bill that would have created a 15-member task force to, of experts rather, to provide recommendations on how to respond to organized shoplifting crimes. Well, Hochul vetoed that bill despite the fact that she has claimed preventing retail theft is a priority for her administration. Well, in Syracuse alone, Police Chief Joe's, uh, Joe Cecile last month voted that shoplifting crimes have jumped by 55% since 2021, and he added that number is likely higher because businesses often don't report it, but they do continue to express concerns, end quote. Well, in New York City, retail crimes have risen 64% since 2019. The most troubling element of these crimes is that a significant number of them are organized. Well, diversity, equity, and inclusion budgets are on the chopping block, especially, um, well, let's just say this. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, the Marxist construct that promotes identity politics, ignores individual merits, and generally judges people based on the color of their skin, the very thing the civil rights movement sought to end, rather than the content of their character, has fallen on hard times. If only it were um, due to a collective conscience of corporate HR offices rather than the reality of budgetary belt tightening. Still, we'll take what we can get. As the Daily Caller reports, the total percentage of American organizations with a DEI budget dropped 4% points, percentage points from 58% in 2022 to 54% in 2023, while the number of organizations with a DEI strategy fell 9 points in that same time frame, according to a report from consulting firm Paradigm. This is good news, and it follows from a landmark Supreme Court decision in June saying that the use of racial discrimination in colleges admissions is unconstitutional. From a cooling towards so-called environmental, social and government investments on Wall Street and from a backlash against corporate wokeness that seen in uh, industry giants such as Bud Light, Target and Disney take some serious lumps. 
May the stockings of the DEI and ESG crowd be filled with coal this Christmas and may their new year be filled with more bad tidings or at least less of the DEI. One of the most delicious news stories of the past year was the glorious September return and redemption of tennis goat Novak Djokovic of the U.S. Open, a major tournament based in New York that had excluded him from the previous two years because he refused the COVID mRNA vaccine. Um, as uh, Joker, as he's known, didn't disappoint. He won the tournament and a record-setting 24th career Grand Slam title along with it. Most magnificent of all, though, was the uh, that the tournament's main sponsor was, we can't make this stuff up, Moderna, one of the prime purveyors of the mRNA vaccine. And now we learn that Moderna, whose vaccine brought the company to a $100 billion valuation and created five new billionaires, has been spying on us. According to Lee Fang and Jack Polson of Unheard, that's H-E-R-D, and internal Moderna report notes, the optics of Djokovic, I can never get that name correct, please forgive me, returning to and winning the uh, Moderna-sponsored competition bolsters anti-vaccine claims that vaccines and mandates are unnecessary. Does anyone else get the sense that Moderna thinks vaccine mandates are a good thing? Then there's this chilling revelation. Other alerts produced by a partnership blending marketing executives from former FBI and Secret Service analysis, uh, analysts rather, um, also cited concerns around drug industry profits as a source of misinformation. End quote. Thus, Moderna is colluding with the government to suppress speech it deems damaging to its bottom line. One of America's elite institutions of higher learning that has witnessed anti-Semitic protests on its campus is the vaunted Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT. On the 9th of this month, weeks after Hamas terrorists um, murdered more than 1,200 innocent Israelis, students at MIT held a pro-Hamas die-in protest on campus. Prior to the protest and in response to the wave of anti-Semitic protests springing up on elite campuses all over the country, MIT President Sally Kornbluth uh, sent a message to MIT students warning that anyone who engaged in an unsanctioned protest would face expulsion. Yet following that protest, uh, she failed to follow through on her threat. No students were expelled. Indeed, the worst any of the offending students suffered was a non-academic suspension. Well, administrators fear that expelling foreign students could, well, trigger uh, collateral consequences for the students, such as visa issues. In other words, they were afraid that some students might lose their visa privileges and face deportation. The irony is that institutions like MIT would likely not have experienced this rise in on-campus anti-Semitism if they had done a better job of vetting foreign students before accepting them. But of course, the bottom line often leads in these decisions. Well, Donald Trump's truth presidential campaign, I should say just his presidential campaign, I was going to say truth social, but that's later, has been going swimmingly lately. But the same can't be said for his uh, true uh, Trump media and technology group, which hasn't posted an operating profit since truth social launched in February of 21. Indeed, according to Substack's Mary Williams Walsh, the value of the business has fallen so much that Forbes bumped Trump, who won, who owns rather 90 percent off its list of the 400 richest Americans. None of these bad tidings, however, have deterred Trump and his team from um, filing a massive $1.5 billion lawsuit against more than 20 media organizations, including The Guardian, The Hollywood Reporter, McClatchy, Reuters, Rolling Stone, Market Watch, Forbes, Axios, The Daily Beast, The New York Daily News, Newsweek, MSNBC, Media, uh, Mediaite, 
uh, the Daily Mail and CNBC. Well, the suit alleges that those media groups orchestrated a coordinated attack involving the false reporting of a $73 million loss by Trump's firm. Well, that number, the plaintiffs say, was an utter fabrication, a coordinated effort to damage uh, the, uh, Trump's um, media group's reputation, degrade the firm's financial standing, freeze its access to capital, and torpedo an anticipated merger. Sadly, it seems to be the American way. When in doubt, we sue. Well, Israel, Hamas, and the two-day extended truce has uh, been underway. It will extend into tomorrow, allowing for the release of 20 additional hostages today. Hamas officials said, we kidnapped foreign nationals for their own protection. So if you wondered, it was for their own protection. Well, the family of the first American released by Hamas uh, bought Hunter Biden's art. Kind of an interesting connection. Meanwhile, Hunter Biden offered himself up for a public grilling by a House panel probing his shady business ties. However, they've called for a confidential hearing and perhaps something public later, like everybody else. More than 2,500 NYPD police officers have quit this year. A Seattle middle school teacher made students write hate mail to Moms for Liberty. And new home sales fell in October as the housing market has been hit by historic mortgage rates. And in a bit of tragic satire, Hamas has been awarded a Nobel Peace Prize for releasing a few of the children they themselves kidnapped. On this day in history, 1520, Portuguese navigator Ferdinand Magellan, he reaches the Pacific Ocean after passing through the South American Strait that would bear his name. 1861, the Confederate Congress admits Missouri as the 12th state of the Confederacy after Missouri's disputed secession from the Union. 1905, Sinn Féin is founded in Dublin. 1909, Sergei Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 3 in D minor, Op. 30, has its world premiere in New York with Rachmaninoff at the piano. 1942, fire engulfs the Connecticut Grove, or I should say the Coconut Grove nightclub in Boston, killing 492 people in the deadliest nightclub blaze ever. 1943, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Soviet leader Joseph Stalin begin conferring in Tehran during World War II. Such an Interesting thing looking back in from 2023. 1961, Ernie Davis of Syracuse University becomes the first African-American to be named winner of the Heisman Trophy. 1964, the United States launches the space probe Mariner 4 on a course toward Mars, which it would fly past in July of 1965, sending back pictures of the Red Planet. 1975, President Ford nominates federal judge John Paul Stevens to the U.S. Supreme Court, seat vacated by William O. Douglas. 1990, Margaret Thatcher, she resigns as British Prime Minister during an audience with Queen Elizabeth II, who then confers the uh, uh, premiership on John Major. 2001, Enron Corporation, once the world's largest energy trader, collapses uh, after would-be rescuer Denergy Inc. uh, backs out of an $8.4 billion takeover deal. Enron would file for bankruptcy protection four days later. And finally, on this day in history, Libyan militant Ahmed Abu Katala is uh, convicted in federal court in Washington of, of terrorist charges stemming from a 2012 Benghazi attack that killed the U.S. ambassador and three other Americans. But the jury finds him not guilty of murder. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. 
And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.